What's up, church? Hey, we're so glad to have uh, everyone here, including those uh, that are joining us on the Edgewood campus. And I just want to go ahead and real quickly say thank you to all the people uh, who took time to write me uh, cards of well wishes. Uh, I have spent a whole week recovering from Castleman's and... Um, uh, Seriously, if you reached out to me and said, hey, Pastor, how are you feeling? Um, that was all a joke. And uh, if you missed that in the message, then you probably weren't listening, okay? Um, so the goal is to listen carefully today. Uh, I actually, uh, as I was preparing uh, for this message, I heard a story about three pastors who had gotten together, and uh, it's rare for three pastors to get together, but they were getting together for coffee, and as they were uh, discussing and having a good time together, uh, they all started talking about a problem they were having in their church. And I know naturally we think, well, okay, maybe it was a senior adult ministry, or maybe it was the youth ministry, or kids ministry, or some of the challenge, but no, it was an infestation of bats in their church building. And so they started talking about it, and one pastor said, I've really worked hard at trying to get rid of ours. He goes, I even went to the, to the, the whole point of, I got my shotgun out. And he said, and I, I just put holes all in our sanctuary ceiling, but our bats haven't left. <clears throat> Another one said, well, I went to the links of uh, going up into the attic, and he said, and I, I just took the time to trap them alive. And he goes, and once I got almost all of them, he said, I drove about 50 miles away. And I let him out. He said, then I come back, and he said, they had beat me back to the building. <laughs> the last pastor goes, well, I, I, guys, I don't know what y'all's problem is. I got rid of my bats. Really? Yeah, he goes, I baptized them, and I've never seen them again. <clears throat> Which seems to be a challenge within the church. For so long, there has been this idea of seeing people come to know Jesus, and then them leaving the church, they say, I'm good. And somehow they have this idea of a hell insurance, a fire insurance card, which allows them to go. And the thinking in their mind becomes rational in saying, I don't really know what the function of the church is. I'm not really sure what the church is about. And what happens in, in our minds and just throughout the culture, if we're not careful, is, is that we put a minimal place on what the church is and should be. And it's seen in not only our commitment to the church, but it's also seen in our lifestyle and then also our view. And so sometimes you'll hear people say, thinking that they're really mature, I don't really need the church. I can, I can have a great relationship with God without the church. And then you minimalize the church. But if you remember what the scriptures say, it says that we are the bride of Christ, that he is the bridegroom. Now, let me explain something. If you think, well, the church really isn't all that important, and I've got a grandpa that, you know, he used to be a pastor, and he doesn't think the church is important anymore, then, then let me ask you a question. What has more precedence? The person who says, I'm a believer, but yet I don't go to church, or the scriptures who says, we are the bride of Christ? Because let me put it in terms in which you'll understand. That would be like me going to one of my buddies and going, dude, I love hanging out with you but I can't stand your wife. I mean, what's he supposed to say to that? Uh, hey, thanks, Brandon. Appreciate that, man. I mean, the, the scripture then says that we're the body of Christ. So we're the bride of Christ, we're the body of Christ. That would be like my wife going, hey, Brandon, I love you. I've been married to you for 14 and a half years, and I'm like, I can't tell how much I love you, but I can't stand your body. 
Well, I'm kind of proud of it, Kelly. <clears throat> but, I mean, what would I say to that? I mean, I mean, what? do you love a part of me? Do you love all of me? And the idea here is this, is that you cannot have a love for Jesus apart from his body, apart from his bride. Loving Jesus is synonymous with loving the church. And somehow we've become clouded in our mind that we can somehow love Jesus apart from the church. Which is interesting because if you love the church, then you love Christ and his body. And so here it is today, and and you go, well, okay, if indeed the church is important, what exactly is the church? And so we're going to take the next four weeks, and we're going to work through this sermon series called Ecclesia. It's the study of ecclesiology. It's something that you would get in seminary, and not because we believe that you need a seminary class, but because we need to know the importance of the church. And so that whole idea of ecclesia is a simple Greek word that you see 114 times in the New Testament. And every time it refers to the church of people that were called out. It's the called out ones. When I was in Dallas, we helped plant a church. It was called the Church of the Called Out Ones. Now, what was interesting is, is that this was a church for people who had come out of jail and were into church. So forever, people were confused. Like, oh, it's the Church of the Called Out Ones. I get it. They came out of jail, and now they're going to be the church. No, actually, it's the Church of the Called Out Ones. It's the ecclesia. It's the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. And you don't just hear it referred to as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, but we are the sheep to a shepherd. John chapter uh, 15, you see that we are the branches to a what? A vine. Uh, You see time and time again that we are the spiritual house of God, that we are the temple of God, that we are the dwelling place in which the spirit of God dwells. Not a house built by human hands but we are the house of God in which he lives in us. That's why he's the cornerstone, and Peter says we are living stones. And so God is doing something, and you wonder, is it a building? Is it, is it somewhere that we go? Is it something that we attend? Is it the traditions that we have? Because what's interesting is, is there's so many in here that when you first came to Stone Point, you go, I don't know that I can go there. I mean, look at the building. It doesn't even have a steeple. And so is the church a building? Is it a steeple? Then you get in and you go, oh man, I don't know if I can do these drums and this loud music. Is the church traditions? Is it liturgy? Is it singing songs? Is it repetition? Is it hymns? Is it hymnals? Is it choruses? Is it praise songs? Is it a band? Or can you just have one leader? What's interesting is, is that none of those things actually make up the church. The church is not a building. It's not traditions. The church is a group of people who have been called out. Understand? That's all it is. In uh, 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness and into what? His marvelous light. Do you see what the church is? The church is a group of people who have been called out. 
So if you are a part of the church, it means that you are a part of his body, that you are the bride of Christ, that you are the branches while he is the vine, that you are a sheep and he is your shepherd. In John 10, 27, Jesus says, if, if I am the shepherd, he goes, my sheep will listen to my voice. They will follow me. They will obey me. So he goes, you can't have the church, the people of God without Jesus as your shepherd, as your true vine, as your bridegroom as your eternal hope, as your care and comforter and your refuge now. Those things are synonymous. And so I thought, well, as we set up this idea of the church, I don't want you to hear my opinion. I, I, so my, my goal for today on the Edgewood campus, the Wills Point campus both, is that you would hear not what I think the church should be, not what I think my preferences for the church should be, not why I believe that Stone Point's a great church or a body of people, but just scripturally what the church is. And so I hope that you brought a pen. And if you didn't bring a pen, you're, you're going to need one in this series. If you didn't have your Bible, I encourage you to bring it next week. Um, because I want you to write things down where you can be able to go back to them. And, and we'll actually post these up on um, these notes where you can get to them this week so that you have them. But the church is what? The ecclesia. It's the, the called out ones, okay? So here we go. We're going to say called out ones. Ready? One, two, three. That is the church. And so we are called out by God, okay? So the church is a people called out by God. It's not a building, it's not traditions, it's not services, it's not liturgical acts. The church is a people that are what? Called out by God, okay? And so if it's a people that's been called out of darkness, we need to know what we were called out of. See, you and I, we were once in conflict with God. James chapter four, verse four, simply says this, you adulterous people, you do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We were once enemies and estranged from a holy God because of our sin. We were in conflict with God. We lived in darkness. Not only did we live in darkness, but we were living in contradiction to God's word. That means that we were craving our own desires. Colossians 1.21, though, says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. We did everything that we could in contradiction to God and his word. We lived for our own agenda. We lived to make a name for ourselves. It reminds us very clearly of the, the Tower of Babel. It goes, hey, come, let us make a name for ourselves. When we live in contradiction to his word, we live in selfishness but also in isolation apart from Christ and his body. We crave sin and the flesh in darkness. Galatians 5, 16, 17, But I say, now walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. The struggle is real, but he says, if you were called out of darkness, he goes, you no longer live in the flesh. You no longer crave the desires of your flesh. That is the sinful nature that lived in you. Now, all of us, according to scripture, were born of flesh. John chapter three, you were born of flesh. So flesh gives birth to flesh. That is the reason that Jesus and the incarnate word, the virgin birth is so important because spirit gives both birth to spirit. So Jesus, Luke 2, was conceived 
of the Spirit. We were born of flesh. If you're born of flesh, that it means that you're in conflict with God, that you're going to live in contradiction to his word, you're going to crave the desires of the flesh. You see it? Why? Because you're living and basking in darkness. Not only that, all the while you're going to go, but I love God. I love God. Yeah, God's really important to me. I believed in God since I was a kid. But what's interesting is, is that while you're living in contradiction to his word, while you're craving the desires of the flesh, it also just gives symbolism that you are actually confused. And so when you live in darkness, you're also confused. You're confused to the truth, Colossians 2, 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are in no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He goes, if you have some moral idea of what Christianity and being a part of the movement called the way, which is the followers of Christ, he goes, you are becoming, in a sense, a moral therapeutic deist. Meaning that you look to your morality as a ways to appease God. And that because you somehow stopped doing something for a little while while you continue to do other things that you pleased God. And he goes, no, that's, that's not really it at all. You're living confused. Why? Because you have an appearance of wisdom. But even that is a self-made religion. And so we have tons and tons and tons of people within the church, not just here, because the church is not simply, what, a global body. It's not just an eternal body, but a local body. But within the church, that what? They have made a self-made religion. Not only were we confused, but our hearts were also corrupt. Our minds were corrupt. Jeremiah 79, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Do you see in darkness in which we lived? Do y'all see this? We were condemned in our sin. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sin in which you were once, once walked. You followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. He goes, you were a child of disobedience. Your father was the father of lies. He was the one who confused you. He was the one that led you into a, a compromising and a contradicting lifestyle. He is the enemy. His name is Diablos, the devil, the accuser, Satan himself. He goes, you followed him. But he goes, now the spirit is at work in the sons of disobedience. Now that we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He goes, you and I were enemies of God, and because of that, we were condemned in our sin. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is what? Say it with me. For the wages of sin is death. So because of our contradicting lifestyle, we we're dead in our sins. So do you understand what, what the church is now? The church is people who were called out of a contradicting, compromising, craving, flesh-desiring lifestyle and out of darkness into the wonderful light of Jesus. Now let me ask you this. Do you believe that about your church, the local body? I mean, look around, think about it. What about the people in your journey group? Do they live in the flesh? Do they contradict his word? Do they crave the desires of their sinful nature? Or do they seem to live in a way in which they were once called out of darkness? That means they were converted to Christ. And that is a great question. Do you and I live as if we were in darkness or do we live as if we have been converted to Christ? I don't know about y'all, but that's pretty good news to me that you were converted to Christ. 
I mean, you start thinking about it. You were in conflict with God, contradiction to his word. You craved the flesh. You were confused and deranged. Your, your heart was corrupt. You were condemned in your sin. Isn't it an incredible thing that God would call you by his grace to be converted? That's all? You were converted. Amen. Called out. So if you were converted, that means your sins were canceled. Acts 3, 18 through 20. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that is Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. He goes, Jesus was, he died and he was crucified that your sins may be canceled. They would be blotted out. That's what it looks like to be converted to Christ. Our conscience was made clean. Hebrews 10, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts being sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Wow. We experience cleansed hearts. We're no longer corrupted, Acts 15, eight through nine. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleared their hearts by faith. Get this, just a second ago, it was our hearts and our minds that lived in darkness. It was our hearts that were corrupt. And then he goes, but I have cleansed it. I have given you a new life. I have given you a new passion. I have converted you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the old is gone and the new has come. He goes, you've been converted. That means you've been cleansed. That means if you're converted, then get this, you should be slowly, 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 slowly being conformed to the image of Christ. Not the image of a better version of yourself, not the image of what you think religion ought to be, not a good moral guy who goes to church often, who gets into a journey group because your pastor hounds you to death, but because you go, I've been conformed to his image. And so Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed to the renewing of your mind. You see that? Mind again. Heart, mind, that the testing that you have may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we're being conformed to his image. We're being clothed in Christ, with Christ. Colossians 1, 12 through 17. Here it is. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If, if anyone has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other, the Lord has forgiven you so that you may also forgive. Does that sound like any church you've been a part of? And then he goes on. He goes, and above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, so which indeed you were called one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He dwells in the church richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Peter 5, 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humil humility to one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the idea here is this. If you've been converted to Christ, you've been called out of darkness, then he goes, you slowly, after being converted, you, you no longer conform to the patterns of this world, and you're clothed now with Christ. Which means everything that was opposite of what you used to be. 
You used to be selfish, self-seeking. You used to be proud, arrogant. You used to live in the flesh. You used to desire the, uh, the, the sinful nature. And now he goes, now all of it's opposite. He goes, you should clothe yourself with humility. You should be kind and compassionate to one another. You ought to let the peace of God dwell in you, rule in your hearts. He said, you ought to forgive others uh, as Christ has forgiven you. He goes, you ought to sing songs to one another, hymns, spiritual songs, all these different things. And he goes, and everything that you do, whether it be a word or deed, it ought to be all done for the name of God. You see, it's being clothed. It's not something that I could do in and of my natural self. It is not me trying to pull up my boots, strap them up real tight, and be a better moral guy. Because I know that a better moral guy is still a wicked, evil man walking as a son of disobedient with the enemy. But if I've been converted, called out of darkness into the wonderful light, then he goes, I'm slowly going to be clothed with the things of God. And when you're clothed with the things of God, you have confidence to enter before God. If you remember the Hebrews series, that's the whole point of Hebrews, that you and I have a high priest, that we have a perfect sacrifice, that we can now access and enter the most holy place before God, not because of us, but because of the one who died for us, Jesus. Ephesians 3, 11 and 12 talks about that confidence. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So Christ, his death, clothing you now gives you confidence to enter in before God. Hebrews 10, 19-20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us for us through the curtain, that is, he goes, you now have a new covenant. You no longer live by the old covenant. It's not a strings attached. It's not a transactional lifestyle. He goes, you have a new life. You've been called out. You're a royal people. You're a holy nation. Live as if you have confidence before God. And so when you have confidence for God, you have no problem clinging to his promises. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. You mean, Brandon, like in hard times? Like, yeah, yeah in death. When you, when you somehow believe that there was a sting, that you remember 1 Corinthians 15, that that sting has been swallowed up in victory. In hardship and persecutions and in famine and trials, yes, all of those things are going to happen. But even as they happen, as you're being conformed to the patterns of Christ, you handle them like Christ. You have a clinging to his promises, you then also consider that our life is worth nothing apart from Christ. That was Paul in Romans chapter 7. He goes, I know the things I ought to, to do, and I find myself not doing. The very things I know I ought not to do, I find myself doing. But then Romans chapter 7, verse 18, he goes, but I know that there's nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. He goes, I know what my life looked like without Jesus. He even confesses that in his ignorance, he knew what it looked like to be a good moral guy, to have external cleansing out in his body. He lived a kosher lifestyle. He, the outside of his cup was clean. I don't know about you, though. I want you to just try something this week. I don't want you to clean your coffee cup until next Sunday. Don't clean it one time. You can keep the outside clean but just dump it out. So that means for all of you that on Monday you forget to pour out your coffee, 
and it sits till Wednesday for you to use that cup again, and there's a little green stuff, all you do is dump it out and fill it back up. It's extra fiber, okay? And you go, well, that's foolishness. Why would I clean the outside of my cup without worrying about the inside? And that is foolishness. Why? Because we know that our lives apart from Christ can look good externally. But if we are not being conformed to the image of Christ and we don't consider our lives nothing without Christ, then we are not a part of the way. And then we are crucified with Christ. So this is, this is because you're converted, okay? So you were cold out of darkness. You saw that lifestyle. Now you're converted and, and it, you're crucified with Christ. That means that your passions, your lust, your desires, your your need to be someone, your promotions, your accolades, your good job, all of those should be crucified with Christ. They're not bad things, but they're not the best thing. And so Galatians 2.20, if I have been crucified with Christ, it is I who no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. And that life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself up for me. So you live as a crucified servant willing to follow Jesus. Jesus says, hey, if you want to gain your life, you must lose it. Because if you lose your life, you'll gain it. He says, hey, you deny yourself, you take with the cross and follow me. And what's interesting is, is that in the early church, the first called out ones, they realized that to follow Jesus, to be a part of the ecclesia, the church that was called out, to be a part of the body, the bride of Christ, it meant that they would likely lose their life. And for us, it is something in which we think we gain our life, meaning we continue without confirmation or conformity to Jesus. We have heaven and we just kind of press on doing our own thing, living in the flesh, apart from Christ, in selfishness, in self-centeredness, picking and choosing what parts of the body we like. Understand? And he goes, that's not how it is. It's crucified with Christ. You crucify all the members of your flesh, and you live and you dwell in the body, okay? So he's called us out. Got that? So he's called us out of darkness to be the church. But get this, he's not just called you out, he's also called you into something. He's called you into community. So he's called you out of the body, but he's called you into community. So what's it look like to be called into community? It means that you're a part of a people who don't just dwell in a building, but you're called to a people who live in conformity with the word of God. You worship God. And so you understand that being called out and then called into community doesn't mean that you just sit in a seat. It doesn't mean that you just attend a service here or there. It doesn't mean that you're just a good moral person and that you try to do more good than bad. It means that you're called out of darkness and that you are walking in light and fellowship with Jesus through the gospel. Now, what's interesting is, is biblically, if you're called out of darkness and you're called into community, that means you should commune together. It means that you should know one another. Why? Because we care and we contribute to each other. That's what the called out ones do. Now put yourself in the context of the early church. In, in 1 Peter, as Peter writes and he enters, he goes, and, and to all of the believers, and then he starts just naming them. He goes, spread through Cappadocia and Galatia and Pontus. I mean, he just starts 
naming them out. And he just says, hey, here, 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 here. And the idea was, y'all are scattered. And that's what the gospel did. It's scattered because of persecution. But if you are persecuted in the early church, don't you think you want some community with a handful of people? I mean, how many people, even in this room, you go, I feel isolated. I feel alone. I feel like I'm not cared for. And you would ask yourself, but am I in community? Am I walking out this gospel? I've been called out of darkness. Am I walking in the light with other people? And so we should care and contribute to each other. Acts 2, 44 through 45. And, and all of you who believe were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions, belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. He goes, we're going to care for one another. Not only that, we also should challenge each other. So you don't just care for one another. It's not just coming alongside and, and, and just kind of patting them on the back and go, hey, good job, good job, good job. We care for you, love you. But sometimes it's, I got to get in your face. I got to challenge you a little bit. Why? Hebrews 10, 24 says, and let us consider how we can stir one another up towards love and good words. Cody talked about that. It, it comes back down to that there is Kool-Aid and there's sugar at the bottom. And the longer you sit, the longer you soak, the the more it crystallizes. And every now and then, you need someone in your life to come back, not because you like it, not because you enjoy it. Matter of fact, all discipline seems what? Unpleasant at the time. But sometimes we just need somebody in community to come and just stir us up and remind us, hey, what are we doing? To provoke us. And that idea of provoke literally means that you would move someone. And now what's interesting is, is what are we provoking others to? When we challenge them, what are we challenging them to? Love and good deeds. What's interesting is in the church is that when we, when we provoke someone, we think they provoked me to anger. It's not uncommon for our little boy Caleb to come in and he goes, Daddy, they are stirring my anger. And they're provoking him the wrong way. And he knows that instead of just waylaying them and hitting them right in the face, it is to step back in some self-control, and then he'll come in. He goes, they're stirring my anger. We're not to stir each other towards anger, but to love and good deeds. Not neglecting meeting together as some in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw, drawing near. So why do we meet together? Why do we challenge each other? Why do we care and contribute to each other? Why? Because the day is drawing near. Christ is coming. And until he comes, we should care, love, challenge each other to be the cold out ones, the people of God. As we do that, we call on God for our help. 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus by saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord and ours. Psalm 46, our God is what? Our refuge, our strength. He is our very present help in time of trouble. So we call on God for help. We cooperate together. Colossians 3, 12 and 13, put on then as God's holy chosen people, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so that you must also forgive. We cooperate together. At the end of the day, listen, listen, get this. This is what I want you to get. If you and I are the cold out ones, we have left a contradiction and a conflict of God, being enemies of God, called out of darkness into the wonderful light of Christ. Meaning we have been converted. We live in him. Who cares about the chairs? 
who cares about what we oftentimes make our cares about? I mean, but think about it. In your foolishness, in your ignorance, how many times you have commented, how many of you have said something malicious or harmful or not in unity, and you did it for one reason, because you have lost the idea and the real idea of what the church should be and is. And it happens all the time. And don't be confused. It's just happening in, in the body globally. It's happening in here locally. How many times have you grabbed a hold of someone else and instead of cooperating together, you, you brought some division or angst or, or some sort of stirring up? We cooperate together. We're committed to something that outlasts us. So here's the deal. If, if you're committed to something that outlasts you, it's easier to cooperate together, okay? Like if you know that ultimately when we fight about the color of the chairs, we're gonna have to live together forever in harmony worshiping God, then you can go, you know what, honestly, dude, the chairs don't really matter, right? Our drink wasn't cold. The coffee was empty. Why don't I have a bigger cup? Why was my kid's teacher late? Who cares? Let's cooperate together in the gospel. If, if your kid's leader's not there, step in and be the kid's leader. We're committed to something that outlasts us. So here's the deal. If we're committed to something that outlasts us, are we committed to something that outlasts us? Are we in cooperation of this? Or do we go, you know what, I'll do this, but I don't want to do this job. I'll, I'll take this job, but I don't really want this job. Oh, I think this job fits me, but this one really doesn't. And, and listen, I love the fact that there are some people here that would truthfully acknowledge, I should not be in this job. I don't care for this job. I don't feel like I'm great at this job. But week after week after week, they serve in that job. Why? Because they're cooperating together and they're committed to something that outlasts them. They go, if I can just teach one kid and ultimately see them come to Christ, being converted out of darkness into the wonderful light, then I'm going to say it's worth it, even though that's not my favorite thing. I'll tell you, it's not going to be your favorite thing to work in kids' ministry week after week after week. Parking's a lot easier. And listen, I'm not minimalizing the job of parking, but I want you to understand that we all, we all have to be committed to something that outlasts us. Galatians 2.20, that's it again. I have been crucified with Christ. And get this, please understand, that because we've been called out of darkness, we've been converted to the gospel, we have been called into community with one another. Guys, we're not in competition with other local bodies or the church globally. I love the fact that when, when Jesus goes to Paul, he goes, Paul, Paul, why, why are you persecuting me? And then he just outlines, he goes, you are not only just persecuting me, because you're persecuting the church. And what's interesting is, is that if you persecute the church, Jesus gives the appearance and acts that if you persecute the church, you're persecuting me. Jesus took it personally when Paul was killing Christians in his ignorance. But the question is, was Paul's ignorance an excuse? Because Paul thought he was a good moral man, and he thought he was stomping out this, this cult called the way. And before his conversion out of darkness into the wonderful light, he did all that in ignorance. But ignorance isn't an excuse. We're not in competition. Philemon 1, verse 2 says, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, uh, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, the fellow soldier. Do you see it? 
I mean, he's writing to people that aren't even in his presence. He goes, I am praying for you. I, I am fighting with you. We are fellow soldiers. And to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from you, our God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see this? Now, please understand and, and pretend that, don't pretend this doesn't happen. Do not try to convince people to come to your local body because somehow you assume we have it right and they have it wrong. Please understand that we don't, we're not looking for church transfers. We're looking for people to be converted out of darkness into the wonderful light. That should be our mission. That should be our aim. That should be our goal. I'm not looking, we're not looking to somehow compare ourselves to other churches in the area because we have more resources now or because we have more things to offer because ultimately at the end of the day, you've not heard me offer one program, one ministry, one anything to anyone as a part of the church. Agree? And so ultimately because we have regeneration and they don't, that doesn't make us better or them less. Because we have a kids ministry and we offer it every service and they don't have the workers to offer any kids ministry. That doesn't make them inferior and us superior. We need every single church in this community who will proclaim the gospel by truth that we would align with theologically to be working and striving as fellow soldiers aiming to please God and give him glory. And if they do it by singing traditional songs, then praise God. Because there are people that they can reach and minister to that we can't. But we should cooperate together. It's not a competition. We are fellow soldiers. If you've been called out of darkness, listen, you're not simply called out of darkness and your only local church in this world is Stone Point. There are local bodies. There are global bodies. And as you see in Hebrews, that there is a great cloud of witnesses that have gone on before us. And then we would imitate their faith. And so listen, there are others who have gone on before us. There are Bonhoeffers. There are Calvins. There are Luthers. There are so many others that have proclaimed the gospel, lived in it as part of a called out body, the people of God. You happen to be a part of the people locally. And so here's the deal. As a people locally, let me just sum up what that means. You're a people. You got it? A people. Say a people. You're called out of darkness. So that means you're called out of darkness and then you're called into community. You cannot live for Jesus and say, Jesus, I love you, but I can't stand your wife, the church. Jesus, I love you, but I don't really like the way your body looks. You understand the point? And so the church is a called out one's called out and also back into But the church is not just called out ones. It's also a pillar. The church is a pillar. Now, what's interesting is you think pillar, you think of uh, some sort of a colonnade. You think of something that would hold up, maybe a porch or um, something that's overhanging. But the question is, is what does a pillar sit on? Well, 1 Timothy 3.15 says, But in case I am delayed, Paul writing to his friend Timothy, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church. Ecclesia is the word, the called out ones. He goes, I'm going to write to you so you know what it should look like for you to be the house of God, the chosen people, the living stones, living out the gospel for the living God. He says, you should be a pillar in a support of truth. 
You know, people ought to look at you and the way you conduct yourself, they ought to know there's something different about you. And so how do we do that? So instead of a bunch of C's, I came up with a bunch of D's. Here we go, okay? We declare the gospel. We declare the gospel. Um, I think of Romans 10, 14 through 17. How then will they call on him who have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. He goes, how are they to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they to preach unless someone goes? Well, let me ask you a question. Whose job is it to go? It's yours. It's mine as the called out ones. We declare the gospel. We preach the good news. Now, not preach the good news in a condemning sort of way, like somehow we're superior and they're inferior. Hey, we're somehow saints and they're somehow sinners. Because let me explain something to you. Saint, there is no Saint Peter. There is no Saint Paul. There is no saint that's an individual. Because all Christians, plural, saints, every time in the New Testament is a plurality, is the people of God, the ecclesia called out of darkness, are the saints of God. And so the saints of God should proclaim the message of God. Not only do we declare the gospel, we should defend the gospel. 1 Peter 3.15 But honor the sign of the Lord as your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have in Christ, the reason that is in you. Titus 1.9 He must be devoted to the trustworthy message which we teach that he can use that accurate teaching to encourage people and to correct them who oppose the word. Because you ought to be able to defend the gospel. Not to somehow defend the gospel with, with you by yourself in your own flesh, saying, hey, you know what, I got this, somehow thinking that the church is dependent upon you and you alone. You don't bear the brunt of the church. You're simply a pillar. Christ is the foundation. And so as a pillar of truth, all we do is declare the word, and then we defend the gospel. We, declin- we defend the gospel by knowing the word, proclaiming the word, expressing the hope that we have in Christ to others. When they ask a reasonable question, we ought to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. When they ask a hard question, we ought to be prepared to give the answer for the hope that we have in Christ. Because what's happened is so long is that people in the church being converted to the gospel, called out of darkness into the one of light, as the ecclesia, have been little prepared to give answers to people that need them. Thus wondering what you're talking about and what power you seem to be claiming because you don't declare the gospel and you don't defend the gospel. You don't just, listen, declare the gospel and defend the gospel, we die for the gospel. That's what the early church was. They died for the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 16. It's quite long, but listen to it. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed. Hey, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We always carry in the body the death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You see that? We always carry the death of Jesus. Why? So the life of Jesus may be manifested in us. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so that death is at work in us, but life in you. Because we ought to kill the flesh. Why? Because Jesus lives in us. Verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence for it is all for your sake. So the grace extends to more and more people as it increases 
thanksgiving to the glory of God so we do not lose heart. You're, what, you're struck down, but you're not destroyed. You're persecution, but you're not forsaken or abandoned. Why? He goes, we don't lose heart for that. Why? Why? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It is impossible to die for the gospel if you think this is your home. It is impossible to die for the gospel if you think your job in this life is to make a name for you. It is impossible to die for the gospel if somehow you think the church revolves around you. But it is possible to die for the gospel if you know that Christ and his death has manifested in us, therefore displaying the life of Christ that all should see. And that should cause you to display the gospel. You should display it. Why? Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. The salt has not what... If it's lost its taste, then how should saltiness be restored? If it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet, know that you are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. So, nor do people light a lamp, put it under the basket, and put it on a stand. It gives light to all the house. In the same way, if your light shines before others, so that what? You should let others see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You and I should display the gospel. So, we should defend the gospel. We should die for the gospel, we should declare the gospel, we should display the gospel. That's with our lifestyle. And the question is why? Like why? Because I said so? Because somehow I'm motivating you to do something? Like that was what I wanted to avoid today. I didn't want to give you some opinion of the church. I wanted you to see scripturally what the church is and why in the world you and I should be committed to. And if you are bored out of your mind, then you clearly don't understand what God has called you out of or he's never called you out of. But if you heard that, you need to heed its words and instructions. Why? Because you and I oftentimes see the church in the wrong light. Matter of fact, if you're a first-time guest, you might have come in and go, I wonder, I wondered how nice this building would be. You know, it's a little more attractive inside than I thought. The outside didn't really do it justice. Um, I'm not really sure about this name, th- th- name tag thing. It kind of weirds me out. I'm not really sure. Maybe this is a cult. I've heard that. I'm anxious to see what my kid has to say about the children's ministry. I wonder if it's better than our children's ministry. I like the hallway. It was colorful. I kind of like what they did around the doors. That was neat. Huh, I don't really like these songs, but I could probably get used to it because I love his preaching. (laughs) Or, man, if this is what his preaching every week is, then I would rather stay at my church because that makes me feel a little better. Or I don't like his preaching, but I really did like the guy that sang songs. He did good. Huh, I wonder if they're going to let me be free, if they're going to let be me, me be me. I wonder what my role is going to be here. I wonder when they're going to let me have some position or power, some accolades here. I wonder if I can fit here. You know what's interesting is that none of those things are things that you should evaluate by. But what's interesting is most, most, even though you would hate to admit it now in light of what you've just seen, came in with that evaluation in mind. Maybe maybe you should evaluate in a different way. Is the Bible held as the ultimate authority 
I would hope that after this one you saw yes. Is Christ exalted as the head of the church or is it some pastor in his prominence or power? Does the church focus on discipleship? Do they worship God? Is the message biblical? How is the fellowship? Called out ones that are called to the community should care for each other. I felt cared for. They made me feel welcome. Is the congregation comprised of people who are simply checking their card or are they, are they comprised of people who truly want to worship God regardless of music style or preference? My friends, that's the church. And, and what's interesting is, is, is I saved the best for last. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he talks about how God has called us and um, how he has, um, even before the foundation of the world, knew of us. But in the latter verse, verses, matter of fact, the last two in Ephesians 1, it says, and he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. So we go, Christ is the supreme authority. The scriptures make that very clear. And in Ephesians chapter 1, in light of all that God has done, he goes, he also gave Christ authority, and he is the authority in the church, of the church. But, it, but the church is, is not just the head, but there is a body, and that there's a body that's important. And then Colossians 1, 18 through 20 says, and he is the head of the body, the church, meaning Jesus. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He goes, he came to reconcile all things. He, but here's what it is. Listen to me. He goes, Jesus is supreme. He is the head. But he goes, it pleased God for Jesus not just to be the head, but to him to give all power, all authority, and all dwelling to the body. Who's the body? We are. So God's manifestation, his death in us, coming alive in us, doesn't simply come from an individual lifestyle, but it comes from God's body, the church, the bride. How are you doing at the declaring the gospel, displaying the gospel, defending the gospel, and dying for the gospel. You will never do it unless you understand what God has called you from and called you into. And my prayer is that you could leave here today with a new understanding of the church, the called out ones, the ecclesia. And next week, we're going to talk about the function. What do we do if we're the called out ones? And what should we do? Amen? Let me pray for us. God, I love you and I thank you for today. I pray, God, that you would allow your word to dwell in us richly. God, we've got nothing but the word. I pray, God, that you would use this to move us forward in our faith. God, that you would um, conform us to your image. May we be more like the church that you intended to be than the church that we want to be. God, may we set aside our own personal agendas and even preferences simply so that we could be the church that you've called us to be. And God, I don't just pray that for our people. I pray that for me. God, help us to love and to live and declare the gospel in light of what you have done on the cross for us and as you have taken all authority and placed it on the church. God, may we know that the church is more important than any parachurch organization. 
May we know that the church is better than any civic duty we have. May we know that it's better than making Girl Scout cookies for the local troop. Although those are all good things, may we know that all power, all authority is given to the church, and the church is where things will happen. So God, help us to be the church. In Jesus' name, amen.